I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to another episode of the TC Live Podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here as we have the final four of the ATP Finals, the Nido Championships in London at the O2 Arena, the last edition in London. This week's guest to preview the final four, the last tournament of the year, none other than Tennis Channel commentator, also does some work for the NFL Network, Steve Weissman. Steve, long time awaited. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, uh, Mitch. You've been doing a fantastic job with the uh, with the TC Live podcast and, uh, you know, doing a great job helping out our shows as well. So uh, always a pleasure to join you. And uh, it's been an exciting week. I mean, the, the last tournament of the year, of, of a year that's been unlike any other, and we still could get, you know, one versus two uh, to decide the, the ATP finals and you know you could have Novak Djokovic win his six which would tie Roger Federer for the most all time he's already done that winning his you know six year end number one and then you've got Nadal who just got his Roland Garros title 13th title there 20th major ties Roger Federer for the most all time on the men's side can he get his first at the ATP finals that's kind of the one yeah. big box that he hasn't checked off yet you know, we can talk about the stats with Djokovic <laughs> and Nadal forever and how great they are. Uh, the one common theme that I think we're seeing at a tournament like this, Nadal hasn't won it, but he's done well here and he's fought hard here. Djokovic is trying to, you know, tie Federer and, and achieve history here. But the thing that's common with these guys in all functions of tennis is bouncing back after adversity. They don't lose much, but when they do, they're able to just wipe the slate clean. Both faced must-win matches, winner-go-home matches. Nadal beats Tsitsipas and and Djokovic beats uh, Zverev in the match that just finished. But both these guys, when the chips are down, it, it's just impossible to bet against them in a winner-take-all And when the stakes are high. They actually do perform their best. No, you're absolutely right. And that is what has separated the big three. I mean, I, I put Roger Federer in there as well from everyone else for the last two decades, right? I yeah. mean, uh, that right now, 57 combined <laughs> major titles. I mean, think about That's that. Insane. That's It's insane. And it's because... In those moments, the big moments in a match, the big moments in a tournament, they know exactly what to do and how to deal with adversity. I was talking with Paul Anacone about it today, and these guys, when something bad happens, they just move on. And, you know, we don't necessarily see that with the next generation of players. You know, Rafa wins the first set. Uh, against Tsitsipas, drops that second set. What does he do? He breaks him in the first game of the third set. I mean, it's unprecedented. And this is something, you know, Steve Tigner wrote on Tennis.com. We have such a great staff of people here, you know, from the linear to the nonlinear and and digital and and everybody at tennis. But that when he was growing up with, with Uncle Tony coaching him, that was one of the big things when when something bad happens to completely turn that around and and get the next point. So, you know, we talk about when Rafa gets broken, I believe he breaks back at a higher clip than anyone else right. on tour. And it's just that mentality of every point is literally the most important point. That's why Rafa's Rafa. 
Yeah, he never gets completely rattled. Uh, you see it. I mean, he doesn't break his racket. That's Ever. just how grounded he is. <laughs> and, you know, when he has moments of uh, frustration, it's almost shocking. Like, how can he have any emotions? You mentioned the Sitsabas match, how he broke right back and, and won that. And the mental greatness of, of him in particular as we focus on him, it's a tough time, obviously. It goes without saying 2020 and the sporting side of it, especially with having to play in, in cities that are under lockdown. A lot of players have struggled with it, struggled with isolation. Nadal seems like his mental strength, his fortitude, is just best suited for this. And this is also, as we mentioned, a, a tournament he's never won. In, in a weird year, he wins the French Open in October, 13 titles, but the first one there. I don't think there's an athlete, I, dare I say athlete, better suited to, to focus challenges and, and take on challenges like this than Rafa. You make a great point, Mitch. And I think, you know, Rafa has taken this pandemic very seriously. He did not come to New York for the bubble, didn't play the Western and Southern Open, didn't play the U.S. Open. We, we didn't see him for a long time. And, um, you know, he, he was very concerned about his family and, and the virus. And, um, you know, to this day, it, it takes everything extremely seriously. And so, um, you know, to see him in Paris w was wonderful and to, to see what he was able to do there and <laughs> dominate that final that, you know, he maybe didn't go into as, as the heavy favorite that he always is there and, and still to right. be able to absolutely crush Djokovic and, and win that, you know, 13th title. But you talk about the, the mental strength of Nadal and, and I don't know if there's anyone stronger. Mm -hmm. um, it's that point for point mentality. At the end of the day, you think about if there's one tennis player playing one match for your life, hmm. who do you want that to be? And, and may, you know, Serena Williams, put her up there as sure. well. Uh, you know, put Chris Everett up there. I mean, talk about mental fortitude. A lot of these, uh, you know, th there's a lot of players on the women's side as well. So I don't, I don't want to not talk about that. But if we're just talking about the ATP finals, Nadal's the guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I trust him to play every point like, like his life is on the line. So obviously, if mine was, I, I would I would trust him with that because there's it, that's just how he's wired. There, it, there's no other way around it. Um, and you say he doesn't break. Right? I mean, it's always that positive mentality. Okay, I have, I have an opportunity in the next point to win, and you know every facet of his game is built around the fact that you don't take a point off. He's going to give maximum effort every time, and and it is like you said, like he play he conducts himself, he carries himself. Like he's trying to break through for the first time, and the guy's twenty majors. You see, when he when he wins a match, it could be a first round match at a major. It's not even the finals. It's the same reaction. You know, he doesn't take things for granted. I've spoken to him after a couple of his Roland Garros titles, um, and you get this sense that he does not take it for granted. He's so appreciative. He's one of the most humble champions I've ever come across. Uh, in the fact that you know. He know he, he, we, we kind of sometimes make fun of his responses like uh, have to play my best right you know like no matter yeah, who he's playing against right. but he does truly believe that and that if he doesn't you know he, uh, there's so much doubt in his mind I, I saw him uh, I covered the the Rio Olympics back right. in 2016 and he was out hitting balls in the rain you know d during an off day like that that's how much he practices with the same intensity that he plays with and we don't see that often Um that's just Rafa, and, and it's why he's in the conversation for greatest of all time, and some may call him the greatest mm -hmm. of all time. 
You mentioned that point too on TC Live this week that he's got the greatest second serve percentage yep. ever, <laughs> and it, it kind of is like there's not many mind blowing stats with Rafa, but that's one of them. And not to you know undersell what his second serve actually is, but he's going to fight. Like it doesn't matter what the percentages are, what point of the match it is, a break point down, he's not going to give you anything. I made the point last week, and I, th- I still think it holds true, obviously, because in the semifinals, Nadal has all these accolades. He doesn't look at a tournament as, like, another feather in his cap, but he looks at this, I'm sure, as a challenge. Like, I've never won this tournament. A lot of people say I can't do it. Time to go to work and prove everyone wrong. I, I thought it was interesting, Mitch, because on Tennis Channel Live earlier this week, Andy Roddick and, and Paul Anacone and Jim Courier talked about Rafa's ego. And that, you know, Andy brought it up. He was like, he he has one, (laughs) you know, and and yes, this is important for him to win this title, something that he's never done and something that, you know, Roger has done six times and and Novak has done five looking for six. I mean, that's a lot. And when you're trying to make, you know, small comparisons between these three greatest of all time players, that is something that's missing from Rafa. And you don't win 20 Grand Slams without having an ego. Yes, he's modest. Yes, he's humble. Yes, he doesn't boast about things. But you're not... Uh, all champions have an ego. All champions want to win uh, ultimately above anything else. And so Rafa knows that he hasn't won this before. And Rafa wants to win this. Uh, and, and now he's two wins away from doing it. And so you add this to the 20 Grand Slams. You know, maybe you put two or three more at Roland Garros. I mean, who knows? Obviously, we talked about, you know, who's going to end up with the most earlier this week on TC Live, yet to be determined. But this is something that, at the end of the day, when we're talking about legacy, when we're entering the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island, Rafa wants a a win at the Nito ATP Finals on his resume. And he's two matches away from getting it. Uh, The guy that he will be playing next, Steve, uh, Daniil Medvedev, we're recording this before his third match. He's already in, has won the group. The The matchups are set. He's got a an interesting uh, matchup against Diego Schwartzman. But Medvedev Nadal played three times last year. Nadal won all three of them. We all remember that U.S. Open match. But their match at the finals last year was up there for discussion, a match of the year as well. Nadal, Nadal down 5-1 in the third, coming back and winning. Stylistically, I just like watching these guys play tennis. It's it's hard to really explain because no one plays tennis like Medvedev, <laughs> but it's always fun when these two guys get out there. I mean, Medvedev's a fighter, too. I mean, he's fascinating to watch. You bring up the match uh, at, at the ATP Finals last year, and you wonder if there's going to be some sort of, of lingering residue there for the Russian because you're up 5-1 against Rafa in the final set, and you lose that. It's going to take a while to get over, but... It, it seems to me that Medvedev is one of those players who also is, is pretty mentally resilient. And, you know, what he was able to do at the U.S. Open in 2019 really impressed me. <laughs> how many players could force a fifth set down two sets to the love against Nadal in a major? Like, that's a short list. It, it, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if it's been done, yeah. to, be, yeah. to be honest. And, um, you know, what he's been able to accomplish this year, he comes in with a lot of confidence. Listen, he, he just won the, the Paris Masters. He's won three of the last six Masters 1000 events. The other three, Novak Djokovic. So <laughs> the fact that he's done that, that's not Roger. That's not Rafa. That's not team that you know this is Daniil Medvedev uh who you know you look at the guy and you know you think he's going to be a 5-0 player at the country club playing every Sunday (laughs) you know with his with his polo and he's just so good he he uses his body so well and we saw in his match against Novak Djokovic a lot of times they're like all right well well they're the same player but Novak Djokovic is just better yeah 
Medvedev was just better, mm-hmm. you know, in that match. Yeah. He's got five inches on him, so he's got that same Gumby-like tendency where he just gets everything back somehow, and he does it with pace, and he does it with angles. He's he's good in every facet of the game. Somehow that serve, which, you know, it's kind of like he just tosses it up, <laughs> not sure where it's going, and then, all right, 130 miles an hour, whatever, yeah. hitting one 111 second serves. I don't know. I I really enjoy watching Daniil Medvedev uh, play, watching him grind, and it's going to be a challenge for right. Nadal, especially on these courts where his play is right, getting that that forehand high to the backhand side uh, of a right hander. Well, high to the backhand side of Daniil Medvedev is different at six foot six than it is to most players, and this court at the O2 Arena in London, the bounce is lower, so that, that's a big advantage for for Medvedev coming in. Much has been made about his struggles in 2020, and maybe struggles is too strong of a word because he was blistering the second half of 2019, but I do think he's a rhythm player, and he's got his rhythm back. You know, the break might not have been good for him because he likes to play every week, go deep into tournaments, quick flight, get back out there. Winning Paris, turning it around. He's, he's finding his groove. He's, the, he's a basketball player that likes to get shots up every day, I think. <laughs> it's tough to say struggle for anyone who's at the ATP finals. Yeah. People say, oh, Zverev, <laughs> he struggled. Dude went to semifinals of Australia yeah. and the finals of the U.S. Open. That's not struggling <laughs> no. to me. Uh, Daniil Medvedev, number you know four player in the world. That's not you know, struggling, uh-huh. to four or five player in the world. Not That's not struggling to me. So, um, you know, we put these expectations on people. If you're in London at the O2 Arena, to me... You had a fantastic year. That that's the goal. End up in the top eight. Give yourself a shot for for the year in championship. Yeah, Roger Federer. I think it was oh seven oh eight Aussie Open when he lost to Joker in the semis, and everyone's like, "What happened?" He's like, "I created a monster, kind of <laughs> like I you expect me to win every major now." And that's what those three guys have kind of forced us to think about. But you know what what's interesting, Mitch, is that this could also determine Player of the Year, right? For because sure. if Dominic Team wins the ATP Finals. I think yeah, you got to give him Player of the Year, despite the year that Djokovic has had. Yeah, I. Wow. What do you think about that? Team is the one where, like, obviously we're looking at the other two, right? And we're because like, if Nadal wins it, he throws. Then his he's hat pla- in the race it, to for me. Sure. He's Player yeah. of the Year. Yeah. Team wins it. Now you have a legit conversation on your hands here uh, with Djokovic's year, which we'll get to in a second. Because, no, because then right. Team, they've kind of messed with the rankings in mm-hmm. terms of whether he can pass Rafa or you not for number even, two. It's almost like hard to look right. at it just on that. Yeah. <laughs> but so if, so if he finishes two and wins a major and wins the year in finals and then beats Djokovic on the way to doing that because obviously his match is against he Novak. Both. I, mean, then, I, I yeah, put it, he's yeah. my player of the year at that point. I probably would agree with you. We'll <laughs> have to see. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Uh, Steve Weissman here on the TC Live podcast. Speaking of Novak Djokovic, now into his ninth semifinal at the at the Nido ATP Finals, and uh, only 13 tries. So he shows up here. He doesn't mail it in. He gets the job done, and he, and he beats Verev in straight sets. You mentioned uh, you know egos a little bit ago. I think it's safe to say Novak has one, and uh, he definitely is some as a player. The more you watch him play, Steve, you can speak to this. 
he needs to get animated. Like he is at his best when he's, you know, yelling in his box, screaming, making plays. I mean, we wanted to, the question we had going into this tournament was how engaged would he be? I think we have our answer after this last match. No, absolutely. Novak is dialed in, and he's he's different in that. All these guys, It's what's fascinating about an individual sport and how you can be great at it, right? So Novak's demeanor is so much different than Rafa's, which is so much different than Roger's. You've got you know John Isner who can play Diego Schwartzman, and it's a toss-up. So that that's what makes our sport so dynamic and so fascinating uh, to watch and be a part of. But for Novak Djokovic, yes, he is he has that fire, and like I said, all champions have an ego. Anyone that wins that much, they thrive off of that. That you know that that's what drives them. And at this point in their careers and in his career, it's legacy, it's history. He's made no bones about it. He wants to finish with the most Grand Slam titles. And Andy Roddick brought up a great point on TC Live this week. That if he ends up tied with either Roger or Rafa, there statistically the case is that that he's the goat because yeah. he has a winning record against both of those guys. Right now, he has more Masters one thousands than both of those guys. If he wins the ATP Finals this year, he's tied with Roger. He's gonna have more weeks at number one, like you'd think. As yeah, well. right. Uh, eventually, yeah. Like, that that should be passed. Uh, you know, sometime early next mm-hmm. year, and so. You know that that's what he's playing for. He's playing for all-time legacy, and he is he is dialed in. You know this week, a tough matchup against you know Dominic team coming up. He certainly he's got the seven-four advantage head to head. The match earlier this year, I think he kind of stole one in Australia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, down two sets to one. But but all right, I'm going to take actually I'm going to take that word back because you you don't like when you're when you're a champion like Novak. It's not about stealing. It's just about being who you are, mm-hmm. and that's why you win. It has like a different connotation in tennis, that word stole. It's like almost like it is a badge of honor. Like Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, another thing that makes them great are stealing matches when they're not at their best. Another stat that's absurd, another example of how absurdly great a guy like Novak Djokovic is, a year where, you know, currently still finishing up 41 and 4, isn't in his top two or three best individual seasons. I mean, because this is a year for him where I think, you know, they're going to be analyzing this in the history books for years to come. And one of those losses, we know what happened there. A couple losses where he just didn't have, you know, that elite level game, but still won all the titles, still, you know, gave his best shot most times in and out. He's comfortable playing here. I don't know what to expect uh, in in any of these matches. I think that's what (laughs) makes it so exciting. But in, in terms of team, him developing himself into a consistent top five player, and I use that, you know, qualifier, top five player, we always knew he could play with and beat the top guys, but I've been so impressed with him going from a clay court, you know, quote unquote specialist to a hard court player who can play on all surfaces. And every time he's playing a top guy, he's in the match and has a legit chance to win it. Yeah, Mitch, uh, you're spot on there. I mean, his evolution has been really intriguing to watch and, and fun to watch because once again, and off the court, have spoken to him on various occasions. He's a great guy. Oh, absolutely. And he, he's one yeah. of those players that we bring him on set. You know, at Tennis Channel, whether we're in Roland Garros, Indian Wells, wherever we are, you know, there are certain players who are like, all right, how how long is this going to be? Dominic will sit up there for a half hour. You just keep asking questions. Like, it's like he's got nowhere to go, right? And and he trains harder, as hard as as any of the top players in the world. Um, I mean, the the sessions that he used to do back in the day with Gunter Bresnik and, and what he still does to this day. I, you know, I am, I am so happy for the way he has been able to progress and, and, and I love the way that, you know, he, when he won Indian Wells, you know, that was kind of like, oh, 
now he won a hardcore, a big hardcore mm-hmm. event. We thought he was this clay court guy. Two straight finals at Roland Garros. You're up against Rafa, so that that's a tough task. But he actually did better the second year. He, he right. won a set. <laughs> then you know you get to the final of the Australian Open. You know, pretty pretty impressive stuff. And then you win the U.S. Open. I mean, it, it's been steady. It isn't something that came out of nowhere. We've seen him constantly get better. He hits the crap out of the ball. Pound for pound, I mean, it's like the hardest shot. Because he's, he's not a small guy. No. But there are bigger guys on tour, but no one who hits the ball like that. No. On, on, on an average basis, his backhand is, I believe, the fastest on the ATP tour. His forehand's right up there as well. You know, you'll see some of these shots more than 100 miles an hour. A lot of times we don't even talk about his serve, which I think he's got a low-key great serve. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and you don't, by the way, get to two or three in the world without all the components of the game. Right. Um, but, you know, we were wondering who was going to be that next guy, you know, less than 30 years old to break through and win a major. Medvedev got to the final of the U.S. Open against yeah. Rafa. We discussed that, but it was team. Yeah. And, you know, and <laughs> it's funny because he did it in a match that he didn't really play that great. <laughs> no. You talk about, you know, unofficially stealing these matches down two sets to win your first one and just gutting it out where he might not have been fully healthy. That run in Australia, not just losing in the final. I know he, he doesn't want to hear it because he didn't win, but beat Nadal, beat Zverev, two very heavy physical matches, and then to still have enough left in the tank to give Djokovic all he can handle. I, I think mentally, because physically, you're absolutely right. Like, this guy can play for hours. I mean, he, Remember how he, many times we were like, he's playing too much tennis, yeah. this isn't good? No. He has no like, problem with it. He has it. no problem at all. Like, literally, play 50 tournaments a year, it doesn't matter. And maybe that got him there, but but physically, he is as, uh, you know, fit as any player on the ATP Tour, any any athlete in the world. Right. I would put Dominic team against any athlete in the world. He is just that fit. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> you want to play every week? Go play every week. Um, and and the way he was able to do that in Australia is fantastic. And, you know, the way he's you know, been able to break through, win a major. And I think that changes his mindset because to me it comes down, it's not physical, it's mental. So how do you beat these guys in the big events? Right. That's all in your head. And to be able to beat a Nadal in Australia, to be able to now come into this event in London as a major champion, to me that changes everything for him. There is a difference between players that are ultra elite that have a puncher's chance against the top players. A guy like, you know, I'd say Sitsipas is still in that category. Rublev for sure. One match, maybe not in a major big stakes, but they can beat these guys. But to consistently be in the hunt all the time and, and have multiple wins over them, that's where a team is uh, transitioning his career. And it's not easy. I mean, it takes a lot. They're the three best ever for a reason. Uh, I'm just expecting a lot of tennis because <laughs> as we look at these matchups, team plays long matches, has no problem. Djokovic can hit forever. That's the one that I want to start with just kind of breaking down. I, I feel like these two guys, I mean, they, they all know each other's, all four of these guys know each other's games so well. But can team, and it almost sounds weird to say, but can he outlast Novak Djokovic? There's there's only a handful that could do that. I think he's got a real chance tomorrow. I, I like team's chances. No, Mitch, I, I, absolutely. And here's here's one. I think he could he could outlast him three out of five. That that would be a dip, more difficult yeah, task. Five, but the sure. fact that it's two out of three, for sure, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there, there's an end in sight, and yeah. uh, physically, in a two out of three match, the, I mean, these guys, you know, they can go six hours, so three hours is going to mm-hmm. be fine. I mean, last year when Team beat Djokovic here, that match I think was like two hours and forty seven minutes. Now Djokovic has beaten him here. That was four years ago. Um, so yes. 
he he can outlast Novak Djokovic, and, and we have seen this year. You know, no, Novak has lost. I mean, I, I think when he when what happened at the U.S. Open when he was defaulted right. for for hitting the linesman, you know, um, in the back of the court, and obviously di- didn't mean to do it, but th- that changed the arc of his of his season, um, and you know, team's arc. Also changed. I mean, it was a seminal moment, right? So Novak, there's no Roger there. There's no Rafa there. He's like, all right, 18th major. Here I come. Yeah. He's out in the fourth round. Dominic team. Hey, look who's stepping up to win their first major. <laughs> that that could change history right there. Absolutely could. Uh, the strength for strength. Because Djokovic's serve has been on fire, you know, so to speak, this week. Didn't get broke today against Verev. Team returning. I'm excited to see it. Uh, Medvedev Nadal the other matchup that we kind of touched on a little bit ago, but Medvedev is somebody that I don't think, like you, you said earlier, is fearless. He's not going to be afraid of Rafa, which is a big hurdle to cross before you get out there. I just, I'm in that point now with Nadal. Like, how could you bet against him? Like, how could you, it's the, it's the gambling side of it too. Like, if there's a player not to bet against, it's Rafael Nadal because you'd feel terrible the whole time having to, <laughs> you know, have your money on the other side. You don't, yeah. You're, you know, as you were formulating that question, I was thinking, yeah, like, how do I go against Nadal? And I, like, I, and I love Medvedev, and I, mm-hmm. and I think, I think he has a, a real great chance of being able to win this match. But you don't bet against Rafa. I just, you know, what he was able to do against Tsitsipas, what you know. I know he can do against Medvedev. I mean, listen, he's won all the times they've played. That's right. worth something. Mm-hmm. He's beaten them here. That's mm-hmm. worth something. Uh, and the fact that he is going for something that he's never done before. And and at this point in the season, a lot of times when we talk about Rafa, it's is he physically healthy? Well, 2020 has been a different year. He hasn't played a, a ton it's a of huge tennis. Huge advantage. Huge for advantage yeah. for him. His knees are fine. He's feeling good. Mentally, you don't worry about him ever. Yeah. So... I, I would take Rafa in this matchup. It's like uh, he I always compare him to the Jason character. Like, you got to just kill the heart. Like, there's 5-1 <laughs> last year. 5-1 last year against Medvedev in yeah. the third set. It's not over until it's over. Uh, more with Steve Weissman on the TC Live podcast. Uh, some other stuff I wanted to get to. This has obviously been an interesting year, not just for the players, but for the broadcasters like yourself. Not getting to have a lot of these tennis tournaments, not getting to travel to a lot of tennis tournaments that you're normally accustomed to going to, like the U.S. Open, and then going to Roland Garros, being in you know an unofficial bubble, but not having the fan support there. Would you say this has been the most challenging in ways uh, year of your broadcast career? I wouldn't say the most challenging. I would say uh, the most different, <laughs> Unique, yeah. <laughs> because I have never done national television from my home before. So, so that's different. Uh, you mentioned I work for NFL network and, and this Sunday I'm actually going into the studio, uh, here in LA for the first time since March, because I'm doing game day live, which the host is in studio, uh, for, you know, the up to the minute stuff that I do there. I do that from home. So, you know, they sent me a camera and, and the ring light and IFB and, you know, all the technical stuff that we need to do a broadcast and I'm doing it from my kitchen. That's different. I, yeah. It's literally something I, I never thought that I would do before. Um, but, you know, I, I, Tennis Channel, I have to give so much credit to, to Ken Solomon and Bob Wiley and Ross Schneiderman, our, you know, the leadership here mm-hmm. at TC, because we never went off the air. Oh. I mean, I was doing Tennis Channel Live 
right before Indian Wells got canceled, the day that Indian Wells got canceled. And I was on set with Lindsay and, and Paul and, and Tracy. And, you know, we kind of broke that news. And then we were here that whole week. And, yeah. and that's, you know, the week that changed the world, basically, uh, when, you know, the NBA canceled and MLB. And basically every sport was kind of getting, you know, knocked off. And we were starting to get closer to a lockdown. Uh, but tennis, you know, led the way. Mm-hmm. And, it, and they made that decision at the BNP Paribas Open not to hold it literally the day before the event was set to begin and and I was you know set to go to Indian Wells I I believe it was the Friday or Saturday before that maybe it was the Saturday um I hosted this um event at the Riviera Country Club in in LA and Maria Sharapova was there Naomi Osaka was there uh Amanda Anasimova John McEnroe Michael Chang and (laughs) it's so funny to think back to that night when they were all playing and everything was quote unquote normal. Right. And then the next day, everything changed. Yeah. And I wouldn't see any of those players for a while and we wouldn't have tennis for a while. Um, but, but we stayed here at, at tennis channel and, you know, I, I was, you know, grateful to be able to have the opportunity to do three hour tennis channel lives throughout the entire pandemic and getting to cover subjects that we normally don't get to having a, a whole week talking about the greatest of all time and, and going back in history with the top 100 players in the history of tennis and talking about, you know, Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson and Billie Jean King and, you know, stories that are remarkable and really have shaped our sport, but we don't get to talk about them on a day-to-day week-to-week basis. And so uh, it was really invigorating and, and uh, you know, I was just so grateful to be able to do that. And so I actually worked more, you know, uh, unlike a lot of people than, you know, during that time than before. Sure. We, we don't do three-hour TC lives. Yeah. I mean, we do. We did a half-hour show today. And so, you know, it, it was fun. I would spend like, you know, four or five hours the night before prepping for the show. And then, you know, I was the only one in studio. It was a skeleton crew. And then, you know, we'd have all of our Hall of Fame analysts Skype in. And that was a different dynamic that yeah. I had never never dealt with before you know obviously I, i've done had an a remote interview but not with four people right that's <laughs> the new challenge for um sure. and but it but it was it was fun and then to be able to to bring tennis back with those utr pro match series events the event in germany and then you know we had the credit one bank invitational in charleston and <laughs> yeah. um you know it the players you could see the appreciation they had just to be able to be on a court to be able mm-hmm. to play their sport um and to be able to call those matches you know, w- was really cool. You you bring up not having fans. Uh, obviously, at Roland Garros, they had a thousand fans. So, what was really interesting there was the French players. No matter who it was, whether oh, it was yeah. Elise Cornet or Fiona Farrow, they would go nuts. Or Gaston <laughs> against yeah. team in that five set. Yes, match. Hugo Gaston. That was that was amazing. I mean, the electricity from a thousand people, you know, filled right. the entire Philippe Chatrier Stadium. Having the roof there was was a little bit different. But but calling a match remotely. So here in LA, when when we're calling a match, maybe it's the U.S. Open with no fans. That was that was different. Mm-hmm. And as a play-by-play broadcaster, um, you know you're used to hearing that that atmosphere, that crowd noise, and that kind of invigorates yourself, you yeah. know, and, and kind of drives some of that. Um, so that was that was weird getting used to, but you know I didn't mind it per se. Uh, it it was just different. Um, but it, it's it's been a, a, a challenging year overall, um, a different year, but one that I'm so grateful to everyone here at Tennis Channel, you know, yourself included, that, that we've been able that. to be yeah. here yeah. and and produce tennis and talk tennis and, and tell these stories and be able to be the first, 
you know, pro sport in America to, to safely return. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's been, it's been really meaningful. You know, the break of tennis to focus on those shows, you brought up an, a good point. It was great to kind of look back in the history books, get more time to study it. You realize that a break, you know, it's good for that, but then you start to miss it. Like you start <laughs> to just miss the, the 250 tournaments that, you know, don't have the, the pub of other ones. Um, but in addition to not having, you know, the fan support, you mentioned being invigorated by like big put by, by calling matches by the fans. I just think of like hot shots or just exciting moments where you're just missing that roar. You're almost, it's programmed into your mind that the crowd is, that appreciates tennis would love to be there. And we know they can't because of safety reasons, but um, it does prove to you, you know, just how passionate and how authentic tennis fans are and important, you know, to the game and to the history of the game. Yeah, because when, when you look back at some of these moments, because we'll show, you know, during these matches that we're calling, uh, pastimes that they've played or, you know, big matches, whether it be at a Grand Slam or, you know, a Masters 1000 or something like that. And, you, you know, you see all these people gathered around. And even, I think I saw just on on Twitter today, it was a video of Rafa just surrounded by fans at some event. Well, I don't, this was in the past. This yeah. is not, not currently. Right. And I was like... I mean, tennis fans are, are are a passionate group, and they they love these players, and they love the sport. And you you know whether it's Arthur Ashe Stadium getting twenty three thousand people for a night match, there's nothing like it. I mean, the, the electricity there at Indian Wells was seventeen thousand plus. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. I mean, the Davis Cup atmospheres that I've seen, the Fed Cup yeah. or Billie Jean King Cup now atmospheres that I've seen. Um, but you know, listen. I'm an energy guy. You know this. So like, whether there's fans or not, like that, I just I get amped for tennis and and, and a big point. Like I'm gonna go crazy <laughs> whether it's whether there's fans screaming or not. So um, you know, the the players and their you know their game kind of brings that out of me. As we wrap up the TC Live podcast with Steve Weissman, um, 2021. Now we're already looking <laughs> ahead uh, to the Australian Open and what we're gonna expect there. Um, they want to pursue an, uh, an event with some fan participation, with some fans there, getting the players into the country, figuring out the tune-up events is uh, is going to be hectic. I will say I, I have more confidence now in tennis's ability to figure something out based on how they've handled this pandemic. So if there's anything to kind of take a silver lining away with how this year has been affected, it's the leadership kind of did show that they could put on safe events. And we had three of the four grand slams. We have a year end championship. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so I, the Australian open, in my opinion, is going to happen where will there be tune ups? I'm not sure, but if you're a tennis player, you're going to be in Australia and you're going to, you're going to go for that major. I mean, Roger Federer is chomping at the bit. You know, he, yeah. he wants to get back there, so so he'll be there. You know Novak's going to be there. He's won more Aussie Opens than, you know, any man in history. Serena, her quest for 24 continues. Mm -hmm. She's going to she's not missing the major. No. So you're going to have all the stars there, whether they are able to have tune-ups or not. I think that's going to be a story that develops, and you'll, you'll talk about, you know, over the next weeks, months leading into that. Um, but I'm excited for the Australian Open because – I think Roger Federer has as good of a chance as anyone. I mean, this is, you know, when he took the time off back in 2016, what does he do? Comes Nobody's thinking about him. 2017 wins in Melbourne. Um, that That's the last major he won in 2018. So um, I'm excited to see him there. I'm excited to see Serena. Um, you know, I think, you know, she is, is focused and dialed in and, you know, has, has a, a lot of success in Australia. And, 
Listen, any Grand Slam is just—it's just fun. I mean, being in being in Paris for Roland Garros, and I, you know, you brought that up earlier. Not getting to travel to these events—that was a bummer. But being a, being able to get to Roland Garros, and you know what everybody did here at Tennis Channel to make that happen and make it happen safely—that um, was awesome. Because there's nothing like being at a Grand Slam, and you know whether it's calling a match on center court or sitting in, you know, that booth, beautiful booth that we have above Philippe Chatrier, you know, I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it. So I, I can't wait for 2021, but still, you know, semifinals to come and, and a lot, of, a lot of good tennis this year. A lot of good tennis for sure this year. Steve, thanks for coming on the TC live podcast. Uh, thanks for all your help getting, you know, everything set up here because the U S open podcast kind of started. This, <laughs> That's like, right. U S open preview ago. back in the day. <laughs> uh, and, and in all seriousness, I know tomorrow's a big day for you with the semifinals a pretty big college football game that's on your radar that you got Northwestern Wisconsin to. go cats uh you know four and0 coming in you know this is for the big Ten West that's basically yeah I don't want to you know there's a lot of games left but they win this one <laughs> I think th- I, yeah I mean I think they win the West if yeah. they win this one for sure and then you know we'll see about <laughs> beating Ohio State going forward but Ohio State's got a big game against Indiana yeah. I don't believe in the Hoosiers right now <laughs> so I think you know the Buckeyes will be there but huge game Back in 2000, uh, I was at Camp Randall Stadium calling Northwestern Wisconsin. It was, I think, the third game of the season. This was Zach Kustak was our quarterback. Damian Anderson was our running back. His son, Drake Anderson, is now our running back. We beat them in double overtime. Tim Long hit a 47-yard field goal to tie it, push it to overtime. Uh, and then we won it in du- double OT. Damian Anderson had the, the game-winning uh, touchdown run. I was literally, our booth, because we were a college radio station, was outside. was outside. So, like, <laughs> we were, like, you know, like everybody had their booth, and then they put our gear amongst the fans. One of the coolest experiences of my entire life. And I hope that 20 years later, the same thing happens at Ryan Field, and, uh, and the Cats are victorious. Northwestern, it seems, <laughs> always plays Wisconsin tough, uh, especially at home. And, you know, I was going to say, too, like, you know, you're a very impartial, you know, broadcaster. But when Northwestern football comes out, that's where you kind of lose it. Like, there, yeah, that's no, I mean, that's know. my squad. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got the helmets. I, yeah. I, I've got all the gear. I'll be – actually, I'll be here. <laughs> so I'll, be, I'll be watching yeah. it in tandem with uh, with the semifinals. See, see if you're listening at home or watching at home if you can tell an inflection in Steve's voice if something big happens. Either way, Mitch, I will guarantee you this. I mean, we're in a purple shirt and a uh, purple pocket square tomorrow. Absolutely. I expect nothing less. <laughs> Steve, thanks again. This was fun uh, for having you on the TC Live podcast. More to come for sure. Thanks for having me. Into the next season. Steve Weissman on the TC Live podcast. A reminder, all episodes of the TC Live podcast are on the Tennis Podcast Network. We're on all podcast platforms as well. Thanks to everybody out there for listening all year to the growth of this podcast. More episodes to come, some long form episodes in December as we move along to 2021 and uh, the tennis action that will follow. For Steve Weissman, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast. We'll see you next time.